0: Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guests are Dr. Sarah Irving and Dr. Shabel Nassif. They will introduce and discuss the new book that they edited together with Karen Sanchez Summerer, who is not today present for uh, the recording of this podcast. The House of a Priest, A Palestinian Life, 1885-1954, published by Brill in 2022 and available as open access. The link will be posted in the description of the episode. The House of a Priest presents and discusses the unpublished and untranslated memoirs of Nikla Khuri, who was a senior member of the Orthodox Church and Arab Nationalist Party in Palestine in the late Ottoman and British Mandate era. With Sarah and Sherbel, we will discuss the life of Nikola Khuri, the context into which uh, sort of, uh, he developed his activity, both as a priest and as a nationalist. And we will look into some of the details about his memoirs, and particularly how to read and make good use of what he left with us. Before moving forward, let me briefly introduce uh, my guest. So Sarah Irving is currently a lecturer in Middle Eastern history at Staffordshire University and editor of a journal, Contemporary Levant. She has worked and traveled in Palestine, Jordan, and Israel for over 25 years in fields including journalism and fair trade, as well as academic research. Dr. Shabel Nassif is currently the chief archivist and librarian of the Melkite Greek Catholic Patriarchate. He's also a researcher at uh, the Center de Documentation et de Recherche Arabe chretienne at the St. Joseph University in Beirut. And previously, between 2018 and 2019, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Leiden University. And it's in the context of a crossroad-funded uh, 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 project, Europeans, Cultural Diplomacy, and Arab Christians in Mandate Palestine, between 1918 and 1948, that this project took shape and it was eventually co-edited by uh, Dr. Irving, Sherbel Nassif, and as I said earlier, Professor uh, Karen Sanchez. Before moving forward and talking about the book, Sarah and Sherbel, Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. So, my first question goes to each and one of you, and I'm probably going to start with Sarah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and... uh, Also, how did you come to work on this book? And the same question will be for uh, Charbel. Uh, If you can tell us, after Sarah, a little bit about your background and perhaps together, how did you get to work on um, the uh, memoirs of Nicola Khoury and how you came to publish it?
1: Uh, Thank you for that, uh, Roberto. Uh, So, um, I mean, I suppose in terms of origins, my background is uh, quite boring. Um, I'm a middle-class British woman from South London, Um, but I always had a wide range of uh, kind of political and activist interests from my early teens onwards. And um, at one point in my life, uh, Palestine kind of became one of them um, and sort of various uh, reasons um, that kind of segued from being something that I did uh, as an activist to something that I started to research and particularly uh, mandate late Ottoman and mandate history. Um, so um, I, lo- I, I kind of like to mention this because um, uh, because I, th- I know that it gives encouragement to some people who are worried about the idea of going back to university later in life. Um, But I returned to university in my late thirties, did a PhD in my late thirties and early forties. And after kind of a number of other um, research and teaching jobs, Um, as you mentioned, I'm now a lecturer at Staffordshire University uh, in the history department there um so i've you know i've i've worked and taught in a lot of different places um in britain and europe and the middle east but um uh but yeah that's that's where i am now and the um the the book and I mean, bell will be able to talk a bit more about the origins of this but one of the uh postdoctoral roles that i had very briefly was with the crossroads project in leiden um and um Charbel and Karen had already found this manuscript um, and started to work on it, but didn't have enough time in their own kind of roles to uh, take it on. So um, she asked me, um, particularly in terms of the fact that from before my academic life, I had been involved in kind of editing and proofreading and copy editing, um, if I could kind of take this on as a project. Uh, so um, so I kind of came in partway through a project that had been initiated by uh, Chabelle and Karen, which he can talk more about.
2: So, In fact, I'm more art historian and uh, theologian. I'm not historian. Uh, when I finished my two PhDs, I was assigned as archivist of the American Patriarchate. And uh, I uh, knew about the research of Crossroad, the project founded uh, by the Netherlands National Research Agency. So uh, when I was preparing my PhD, I worked a lot uh, on archives in Rome. And uh, it was a good experience for me. And after, I worked also on archives in Lebanon and many monasteries. Uh, So when I had this postdoc, uh, Karen came to Lebanon and we were planning to visit many institutions. So we went to the American University of Beirut and we went also to Institute of Palestine Studies in Beirut, in Verda. And there we find uh, many sheets like archives, like an index of archives. And there we find Journal of Nicolas Khoury. Uh, Karen had the intuition, oh, it seems interesting. So we asked to see this document. Uh, we saw it for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And after she told me, Sharbel, it will be more really important to publish this journal. Uh, I'm supposed to work on Melkite Christianity on Greek Catholic. I wrote an article on Greek Catholic, on Egoros Hajar in the volume, but she told me, no, we should work on this book. So I visited many, many times the Institute to copy all these manuscripts to Arabic and then to translate it in English with Vicky Musa'ed. So both she was, uh, she uh, were translating uh, the work in, in English, I, I was correcting her work because, you know, we have some terms in theology, in history, in many things that not every translated could do it. And after Sarah review all the work with all that correction, and we have many to, uh, to uh, publish this book, and of course, thanks to Salim Tamari from the Institute of Palestine Studies, we have the authorization, the permission to publish uh, uh, this journal.
0: I guess my next question is, uh, let's start from scratch. Who was Nikola Khouri?
1: Yes.
2: So, uh, Nicola Khouri, he was born in Berzid, in Palestine, in July 1885. Uh, he's, he came from an Orthodox family. From middle-class. He was not rich and he was not poor. His father was a priest. He was ordained priest, his father while Niki has had, had six years old. After he moved to Jordan, he moved to Karak, when he was 14 years old, because his father was assigned a priest there. After uh, they sent him to Jerusalem, to the Seminary of Jerusalem, For many years, and there we find in the journal that he was a very good student there. Uh, He was really intelligent, as he said. After he uh, came back to Karak, and he was assigned as a teacher there. We can consider that the beginning of Nikola's political commitment begins on Karak when he became a member of the Young Turks Association. Uh, we can say that his father maybe forced him to marry, and he had two children, Mariam and Takla. After the revolution in Karak in 1910, he returns to Palestine, and as you told us, it was a so difficult journey. If you read page uh, 84, for example, our journey from Ziza to Madaba was also a perilous one. In the dark of the night we lost our way, roaming in a rank, wetland, sinking up to our knees in mud, if we were if it were not for the kind mercy of the Creator, we would have succumbed. So in Palestine in nineteen eleven he was assigned as a teacher in the school in Ramla. During the first World War, he was first assigned the position of clerk of the clothing and munition warehouse in Jerusalem and then of the officer responsible for issuing stores. In 1922, he moved to Jerusalem and after six years, he was ordained priest. Maybe now Sarah would like to continue the rest of the biography of Nicola.
0: Sarah, apologies, you need to open your microphone.
1: Um, So, um, in the 1920s, I think we can say maybe that um, Nicola's uh, priorities and his involvements um, split into two main strands. Uh, One is that he is a a local priest, he's a man with uh, a growing family, Um, he Moves around in his job uh, on a number of occasions. Um, he also has uh, various family troubles that he talks about involving. Um, so so you know the normal things that happen to any family of bereavements uh one of his brothers um becomes mentally ill and ends up disappearing which is a very sad story so there's kind of the complexities of everyday life that we get a little bit of a glimpse of in the book but also more in terms of uh, uh the kind of the public life um He's a priest, but he's very much part of the movement within the Greek Orthodox Church to Arabize the church um, to use the Arabic language instead of Greek for Arabs to be ordained and promoted to higher positions in the church um, instead of uh, just Greek clergy. Um, and this kind of, um, you know, and this is something that there's a quite an abundant literature about already. The relationship of this movement to Arab and to Palestinian nationalism, more generally. So he also becomes associated with the anti-colonial nationalist movement within Palestine. Uh, he's he's kind of of the faction of um, the Husseini family. Um, so the kind of, in some ways, the the, the kind of mainstream um, of um, of Jerusalemite and, 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 and Palestinian uh, nationalist activity, and I mean we'll talk about this uh, later on, but um, he does uh, on a couple of occasions have some sort of fairly important roles within particular projects. Uh, so this is kind of the, the, the sort of life he has up until the Nakba in 1948. Uh, and then he moves um, for sort of the final years of his life um, to Lebanon um, after the Nakba uh, and um, and goes back in some ways, I think, to we could say goes back to being a local priest who is mainly concerned with his family and his and his village.
0: We will go back to the question of the Nakba uh, as a crucial period, but I'm, I'm curious here a little bit about uh, the general context for listeners that might not be entirely familiar with the role of the Greek Orthodox Church in Palestine. And given that the story takes place in the Greek Orthodox landscape of the region, can you tell us a little bit more about the question of the Arab laity and clergy vis-a-vis the question of the Greek hierarchy? So this uh, sort of dichotomy between the larger group, obviously the, 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 the faithful uh, in the church, but the fact that the, the, the church was ruled by a minority coming from uh, different places.
1: Yeah, so this is something that is um, covered by a chapter in the book by another member of the the Crossroads Project. So the the project at Leiden um, that was funded by the Dutch Research Council with with Kain um, as the as the PI, um, and that's Costas Papastatis from uh, Aristotle University, um, and he's very much a specialist of this question of the role of the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, in Palestine um, at this point in time. And so there had been, and again, there's, you know, there's quite a substantial literature on this, but there had been since uh, much earlier in the 19th century, this kind of tension um, and indeed conflict in the Greek Orthodox Church over the fact that the hierarchy of the church was almost entirely Greek Orthodox. Um, Some senior members uh maybe even came for senior roles in the church without speaking any arabic um even though the majority of the the huge majority of the actual congregations at this time uh are, are arab are arabs are arabic speaking um and the um the sort of there was, there's a there's something called the Brotherhood of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a specific uh, kind of subgroup within the hierarchy of the Greek Orthodox Church in Jerusalem. And uh, this was almost entirely closed to Arab clergy, um, but also it was extremely necessary to be a member or very close to this in order to be promoted to some of the most senior positions, including the patriarchate. So, um, so Khoury is very much part of this movement that, as I said, has been has been growing. Uh, since the 19th century, to uh, we might say, kind of indigenize the Greek Orthodox Church, and this was something that was very much contested by um, the leaders of the church in Istanbul and then in Greece, um, because of obviously the kind of status of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, um, and the fact that there's you know a lot of prestige and a lot of importance attached to. Kind of who 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 gets to uh, who gets to maintain control um, of these elements um, of kind of Greek Orthodox uh, Church practice? Um, it's you know obviously it's a major site for pilgrimage. So there's large numbers of Orthodox pilgrims visit Palestine, uh, not just from the Ottoman Empire and former Ottoman Empire places like Greece, but also especially from Russia. Um, and it's and it's very much a kind of subject which gets tied up with also European colonialism, Russian politics, um, Russian relationships between um, between Tsarist Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and these kind of things. So, you know, there's the level of somebody like uh, Nicholas Khoury in terms of, of of kind of trying to push upwards as an ordinary member of the church, and then there are kind of other. Uh, pressures and, and conflicts going on um, that are really on the level of, of sort of international diplomacy and international uh, international conflicts.
0: I'm also curious a little bit about the question of the role of Christianity in Palestine. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the role of Christians in Palestinian society and politics, uh, just, just at large and not just focusing on the Greek Orthodox Church.
1: Charbel?
2: Yes. Maybe before, I would like to add one more element to what Sarah said. Uh, for the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem, education, pastoral work, and charity was not really important for them. That's why when we read all that journal, we see how much imp- uh, the, edu- the education is important for Nicola Fure, the schools they always said as the schools in Jerusalem was not very good etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. the school here is very good so it's very important the education that's why in the 20th century many greek orthodox were converted to greek to, the, to be greek catholic because rigorous hajar gave them schools and if you read the correspondences and the letters between the greek orthodox and because Hajar, they were asking for two things: for a priest who can speak Arabic, who can preach, and for schools. So that's why always we see in this journal that Nicola Fourier was a very good priest. A lot of person like his homilies, and he was trying always to give a better quality for teaching. To answer about your question, Roberto. In general, about uh, Palestine, the Christians were like mosaics. So we have Greek Catholic, Greek Orthodox. We have also Latins, some Maronites, and also we have Anglicans. We have Armenian, we have Ethiopian. So we have many tradition, many culture uh, implanted in the in Palestine. And of course, because it's the Holy Land, it will be most important. To uh to be present to venerate the holy places, the Jerusalem, the, the temple, etc., the Holy Sepulchre. Maybe Sarah you would like to add something?
1: Yeah, so I mean as, as Chaubel says, um in some ways um Christianity in Palestine is very complex. There's lots of different communities. Sometimes they can work together. Sometimes they are in competition. Um, but in terms also of especially the mandate period, and in and, and in terms of the wider politics that are going on in mandate Palestine, uh, the rise of the Zionist movement and especially political Zionism, um, and the increasing amount of Jewish immigration that's happening during the Mandate period. Um, We also see Christians, for instance, are extremely active in Palestinian nationalism, um, in uh, anti-colonial movements within Palestine. Um, So, for instance, we see that quite often the uh, editors of the major newspapers, uh, such as Philistine, are from Christian communities. Um, we see a lot of um christian palestinian christians involved in the various kind of nationalist um political or social or cultural movements um and you know it's it there's there's this kind of stereotype i think um nowadays um in the 21st century of palestinian nationalism as something that is uh kind of very heavily dominated by islam and and muslims and actually uh, during this period, it's, it's very diverse um, and there are Palestinian Christians, whether they are Protestant, whether they are Latins, whether they are Greek Orthodox, whether they are uh, Greek Catholic, involved in many different strands of uh, trying to, to kind of defend the idea of Palestinian identity and pa- the kind of Palestinian right to um, national self-determination. Uh, you know, in the, in the face of, of the British Mandate um, administration.
0: Well, we, we cover the context, and I really want to go back to um, the memoirs and obviously Nicola Khoury. I, I was just wondering, Nicola Khoury lived uh, through a number of different uh, eras, I would say, through the late Ottoman period. Uh, the British Mandate including the end of the British Mandate and the creation of a State of Israel and also, obviously, the, the division of uh, Palestine, uh, you know, with Gaza under the Egyptians and the West Bank under the Jordanians. How did he experience these various changes?
1: Oh, okay. you're Okay. Um so i mean there's yeah there are there are huge changes that go on uh in in huri's life um he sees the young turk revolution he sees world war one um he experiences kind of all of the things that go on during the british mandate in terms of the the politics of, of zionism and palestinian nationalism uh and then of course world war ii and the nakba so um he he plays some very interesting roles in some of these. So, for instance, if we look f- um, at his his experiences of World War One, um, as Chabell mentioned earlier, he he gets this kind of quite responsible position um, in terms of looking after stores. Um, and he kind of very openly, and I think in a sort of quite anti-Ottoman way, perhaps admits that then he also puts his brother in charge of some other stores and, and, you know, and that they're able to, in some ways, survive parts of the war and the famine because they have access to these military warehouses. Um, so sometimes he's quite a skilled, uh, a skilled operator at, at kind of taking opportunities, um. And uh, dur- but then during the, the mandate period, I think he he spends a lot of time. It feels like he spends a lot of time being quite angry and quite frustrated, whether it's by the British authorities, whether it's because of um, the Greek hierarchy in the church. Um, and you kind of get the feeling from the way that he writes that he sort of always wanted to have power and to have influence and to be able to. To push events, and that this never really kind of happened in the way that he hoped, uh, and I think we maybe see this also in terms of how he experiences the Nakba, um, and he manages kind of through his relationships with some of the members of the uh, of the church in in uh, Lebanon to uh, to get a parish in Lebanon and to you know so to be able to. At least have somewhere to live and, and and an income in the way that many refugees Palestinian refugees from the Nakba didn't. Um, but he goes to, you know, he he ends up, you know, really quite low low status. You know, it's a village that he has. He's he's not in the kind of position that he uh, he aspired to or that he had had um, at times within Jerusalem. Um, so he, I guess, he very much has um, an experience in the in the final years of his life of going from feeling that maybe he's quite a lot at the centre of events to being quite marginalised. Um, and, you know, uh, we were talking about it earlier and Chabelle did comment that that perhaps even in some ways maybe getting the, the parish that he's given in Lebanon, that perhaps that it was maybe on, you know, kind of on the condition that he didn't say anything too controversial, that he didn't speak out uh, and these kind of things. So, um You know, I think he's I mean, obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians suffered in different ways during the Nakba. But in terms of his kind of experience of the the way in which the first half of the 20th century plays out for Palestinians, um, I think he's somebody who 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 sort of rose and then very much uh, kind of lost a lot of his position um, in contrast, for instance, to sort of some of the nationalist leaders that we see who, you know continue to be an influential role somebody like say A and Arif becoming mayor of, of Jerusalem and, and you know these people who um, who find other political niches um, he, he very much becomes somebody who um, is quite ma- quite marginal for the final years of his life.
2: Thank you. I don't want to add a lot of things but as we when we read the journal of Nicola Khoury, we could imagine that he want us to know that he played a crucial role to avoid the partition of Palestine when he traveled to Geneva and he visited many, uh, many countries, Serbia, uh, Greece, uh, Romania, to, involve, to inform the government of these countries, people, leaders, about the danger of threatening the Holy Places since the Caesar of the country by the Jews, and either when he talked about Nakba, and we say that he spoke a little bit about Nakba because after that he returned to he he traveled to Lebanon. He tried to form a committee among the Christian clergymen, including all the communities, to protest against these attacks. We have the impression Huri want. To say that he did all his best to prevent uh, Jerusalem or Palestine from the Judaization of the Holy Land, but uh, all what it is, what what he did, he couldn't. attain uh, it didn't work. it Didn't work.
0: And actually, this makes me wonder about. Uh, one question about uh, how do we read these memoirs? In other words, uh, how do you think this narrative has been mediated? And um, are there any sort of uh, parts that we should be skeptical of? I mean, this is like, it's always the problem of reading diaries and memoirs and trying to understand, uh, you know, what kind of pinch of salt we need in order to make sure that we have a correct understanding and also understanding the context behind the, uh, the memoirs in this case. Uh,
1: shall I take the first part of the question and you take yes. the, the yes, second? Yes, so, yes, no problem. So in terms of kind of how these memoirs have been mediated, um, I think firstly we know from his own account that uh, Khoury says that he kept diaries or, or journals and... Um, in some ways, uh, from quite early in his life, but that they are destroyed at several points in his life. So he writes things and then they're lost. Uh, So, you know, we kind of know that this is, uh, we know that this is sort of a final version, um, as it were. So it's something that is written largely after the Nakba, um you know he's probably framing elements of what he wants to say according to historical events and according to a certain amount of um of sort of looking back over things um as Chabelle has mentioned you know you you get the sense that he very much wants to to indicate that he did all that he possibly could um uh and you know and 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 I think as Chabelle will discuss a bit more, maybe even overstates that quite often, um, to put it mildly. Um, I think there's some interesting aspects of that whole question because, um, you know, we do think that probably this manuscript was written towards the end of his life, so in the early 1950s, and that does raise issues around the fact that, for instance, when he's travelling through the Balkans to Geneva, and we talk about this, we might might talk about this um, in a bit, but, um, you know, he is... He is asking for support from people who then a few years later um, are very probably involved in the Holocaust of uh, Jew- the Jewish communities of the Balkans um, in Romania and, and other parts of the Balkans. So, you know, there is there are there are aspects of this that are very problematic in terms of what hasn't hasn't been mediated in different ways. And then of course there's just the basic fact that this is translated. Um, it's, it was, it was a manuscript and then it was transliterated by Charbel in order to give us a version to use. And then it's been translated. Um, uh, that was very much a collaborative process between three, four, five people, uh, and the annotations again, you know, there's, there's work there from, from, uh, Karen, from Charbel, from Costas, from myself, um, so you know, uh, we've kind of tried, I guess, to do do as much justice as possible to the to the original version. But you know, translation, as as many people have discussed and written about, is you know can be seen as a colonial act, can be seen as an aggressive act. Um, so you know, we 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 tried to uh, to be as close as we could to to what he was writing. Um, and having people like Costas and Chabelle, I think, was very, very important because of their specialisms in uh, the, the, the particularly the religious side of things, which is something that I don't particularly have. And, and the fact that this is something that's incredibly important to him, and so I think, you know, in some ways, there's a, there's a lot of language in there that is very, very uh, specialist because it's you know it's about the practices of Christianity in a particular environment and that many of us from outside that won't understand. And so, I mean, having Chabelle and Costas there to really sort of contribute how to engage with some of the terminology and and the the sort of the feeling behind that as well, I think is really important.
2: My turn? Yes, (laughs) thank you, thank you. In fact, Roberto, every time... Uh, Nicolas Khoury shows us as a hero, we should be skeptical. Skeptical doesn't mean that he is a liar, but we should be a little bit uh, more attentive uh, for what he's saying. Uh, Nicolas Khoury considers his person more important and valiant than all others and bring everything, every event back to himself. Thanks to me, we could do that. Thanks to me, we avoid these problems as Muslims. Thanks to me, etc., etc. And even when Khuri visited the king of Jordan, Abdullah, he mentions that the king proposed him to become the patriarch of the Arab and said he was ready to make this happen. So, a king, a Muslim king, proposed to a married priest became a patriarch, it's a real illusion. It's not. It's not normal. It's not normal. I think King Abdullah and even any simple person would not uh, propose this thing. So we ha- we can say that Nicola Khoury has a big ego, and he want always to. Uh, uh, we can. I feel that, of course, Nicola excelled in teaching and password services, but for his political engagement, it's clear that he believed he played a crucial role in the national struggle. But in fact, we don't know a lot of things about him. When you open an encyclopedia of about Nicola about Palestine, Palestine, the 18th century, sorry, the 20th century, the Nakba, everything, you will. You will see many articles or many mentions about Hajar, gross Hajar. But we will not see anything talking about Nicola Kure. And if we talk about Nikola Kure, he was in this committee, in this committee, only this. So I think for example, also when he said when he visited Romania, Serbia. Many uh, journal take pictures of him, kisses her hand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, our team tried to search in these journals in this period. We didn't find anything. So it was really interesting to say that he was not always honest in what he he will try to keep. Let us say he's a, to think that he he's a star. He's a star like Hajar or other person. But I I don't feel that it's true. I, I don't feel that it's true. And sometimes he do some wrong ecclesiastical things. For example, when he traveled to Egypt without the permission of his patriarch, it's forbidden. It's not normal to travel and to serve in a church without the permission of your patriarch. And or, for example, when he participated to a marriage and the patriarch was present and he didn't he didn't mention him. it's not normal so i think that sometimes uh nicola didn't say all things always he he told us a part of uh, the reality thank you
1: and I think to add to that, I mean, I would stress we spent a lot of time looking at uh, Arabic newspapers, Serb newspapers, Romanian newspapers. There's, you know, there's been many people, including uh, um, uh, the the PI of Shaber's new project, Ioana Fedorova, in in uh, in um, Romania, tried to find in in you know in various uh, Orthodox archives as well, and we. If we find mentions of him, they are they are really small. And, you know, again, in the question of mediation and the fact that this is mainly written in the 1950s when he is very much outside, you know, you kind of start to wonder if this is a bit like, you know, your uncle whose, you know, war stories have him as the great hero of something rather than, rather than you know one of the followers and you know Khouri's been sidelined and been marginalized but he wants to see himself as as superman.
2: I want I want Please go ahead. Yes if I may I want only to read one paragraph uh, from the introduction uh, talking about uh, this matter. Uh, the use of the Arabic expression we had a shining place among them among other priests, underlines the degree to which Nikola was seemingly obsessed with his own importance. Details such as the story of the highest governor and the mutasarrif coming to school to attend his classes are unlikely to be totally truthful. His megalomania strikes again when he considers that none of the former priests could be found worthy indeed were worthless after he and Khalil Hakim were ordained and took up their position in Jerusalem. This observation is far from any Christian spirit that Father Nicola should have shown towards his colleagues. Thanks.
0: Well, it sounds that uh, he was some sort of a self-proclaimed large-in-the-life character, and then obviously maybe history will tell us that, in fact, he was like this uh, very important uh, historical uh, figure. I I have a question about a trip that you already mentioned several times. So in 1937, he traveled to Eastern Europe and also to the League of Nations in Geneva, in Switzerland. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was the purpose of the trip and also its outcome? So in
1: 1937, the League of Nations uh, debated the idea of partitioning Palestine between Arabs and Jews for the first time as a kind of formal proposal. Up until then, the idea was of the mandate, the the sort of mandate structure, was that Palestine would be uh, a land that at some point in the future, under the mandate system, would be ruled by um, Jews and Arabs together in some way. No one really knows what vision the British had, if indeed they actually had a vision for it. Um, but um, but as the situation became more and more difficult, especially during the the, um, the Palestinian uprising of thirty six to thirty nine people started to say okay maybe instead of trying to create a single what would what would now be termed a single state solution um we need to partition the land and there was the first of the debates about this um in 37 at the league of nations in geneva now obviously the the zionist movement has a delegation and also there is a it's not really a Palestinian delegation. It's more of a, an Arab nationalist delegation. Um, it's actually uh, to some extent headed up by, and I can never I think it's Adel Aslan, not Shakib Aslan. It's one of the Aslan brothers and I always get it wrong. Um, and then you have Palestinian figures like Ani Hadi um, who go, and some of those go direct to Geneva, Um, you know, they are a a, a delegation who are in Geneva for all of the proceedings, uh, and there's various different stages. What Khoury is asked to do instead of this is to go overland, so he gets the train, and this is a kind of fascinating account in its own right, but he gets the train from Palestine up through Syria Um, and and through Istanbul and then through the Balkans and as we've mentioned before, he visits um, uh, leaders of the Orthodox churches in some of these countries and he visits politicians who are of, of Orthodox faith. Um, and asks them to support the Palestinian side in this debate. So he goes to Serbia and Greece and Romania and, I think, Bulgaria um, and and visits a number of of politicians and and church leaders. Um, And, you know, he has varying experiences. Some of them um, seem to be very positive, others less so. Um, he then goes to Geneva for the actual debate and vote, um, and and it, there he is, <laughs> um, as we've described. Possibly he uh, overstates his own kind of uh, prominence during the debate, um, but he is he's there as part of the Palestinian delegation um, during it, uh, and, and 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 also comments um, on the fact that the Zionist organisation. Um, at, uh, you know have have also have um, a presence there, and he, and it's you know it's very interesting in terms of his description of the actual events there, and he talks about people like Eamon de Valera, the the Irish nationalist leader, making a speech in support of the Palestinians as well, which which you know it did happen. He was he was he was very supportive of the Palestinian position at various times. Um, so it's it's a really interesting kind of glimpse of kind of a, a quite a pivotal moment in Palestinian history there. I have a couple more
0: questions, um, and one is about Chapter 2 of this book. Uh, um, chapter 2 looks at uh, Arab Orthodox in Palestine and Jordan through the lenses of the Frank Schulten photographic collection of 1921-1923. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this particular uh, photographic collection? Why is it included in the book, and what uh, does it tell us?
1: Okay, so um, this chapter was prepared by Sari Zananiri, who is another member of the Crossroads Project, and he's been working very much um, on this Frank Scolton um, archive, which is held by the Dutch Near East Institute. Um, and um, uh, the reason we wanted to include this is that uh, <laughs> despite his statement that there were lots of photographs published in the newspapers of him in the Balkans, we actually couldn't find any image of Nicolas Roury. We don't really know what he looked like. Um, But what we do have um, from various places, but particularly from Houlton, uh, is a sense of the, the Greek Orthodox presence in Palestinian life In a very day-to-day way. So, uh, Schulten was in Palestine for these two years, as you said, 21 to 23. Um, And as various scholars have commented, um, including people like Salim Tamari and and Yahya Wallach, um, he... More than really any other photographer of the period, he gives a really kind of day-to-day, almost sort of intimate sense of just what a street looks like, what what normal life looks like in this particular moment. And the fact that he is taking these photos in Jaffa, in Jerusalem, in other parts of Mandate Palestine, and we see the presence of Greek Orthodox priests, Greek Orthodox processions, just the everyday life of Greek Orthodoxy within the wider Palestinian society, I think is quite important in terms of getting across the fact that although Khoury kind of very much talks about himself in this very prominent role we also have to remember that he is absolutely a part of society a part of culture a part of politics and even if none of these photos are of Khoury we don't know that maybe maybe some of them are (laughs) which would be very exciting but I don't think we have a way of knowing that Um, but it kind of shows the sort of setting that he was part of and that he's in um, so at least gives us a sort of sense visually of, of, of the environment that, that, the, that at least part of these diaries are set in.
0: I'm curious, and this is a question for both of you. Uh, what are the most remarkable stories to be found in the uh, memoirs? Anyone of uh, that is uh,
1: your favorite? I'm going to jump in here because my example is quite boring and historical. Whereas I think Chabell's is really beautiful, um, so my one is 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 uh, is his account of life in Karak, because I think that's really quite unusual in terms of a first person narrative of late Ottoman Karak from a greek orthodox position yes maybe he is overstating his role in the committee of union and progress there and his relationship with the mutasarif and things but i think it gives a really interesting moment that you wouldn't find in i think any other palestinian memoir um, and, and the bit, of, and, and also when his family have to flee because of the counter-revolutionary uprising that's happened in 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 Kerak at this point. Um, so I think you know there's lots that's fascinating in here, but for me that sort of stands out just as a really unusual bit of history that uh, you know it's, it would be very very hard to find anywhere else.
2: So for me, in fact, in this period the. Uh... We, when we read the journal of Nicola Khouri, we know that he has two children, Mariam and Takla. But in fact, his wife also was pregnant for four times and always the baby was born and then he was dead for many reasons. So at some point, uh, Nicola Khouri said, we planted as such a baby in every city we lived in. Karak, Ramla, Jerusalem, and Brazil. I felt very sorry for him when I uh, read uh, when I uh, read this sentence, especially in Arabic, we planted. So it was really, I feel a lot of compassion uh, for him when uh, he talking about, you know, in this uh, period, no, no medicaments, no antibiotics. So it was not the same situation like uh, our days. And I want to add uh, something. I'm uh, really a little bit uh, tired or a little bit, uh, I don't know why. Sometimes we read that Nikola Khoury was in very good economic situation and suddenly he's poor. And then he's in very good situation, suddenly he's poor. I couldn't really understand the reasons. I was not totally, totally convinced. Maybe this makes... Uh, The ego and exaggeration and all that made me more skeptical about his biography. But uh, when I was talking to Sarah, we had the same idea. Sometimes he's very rich and sometimes he's very poor. But the most important, in both cases, he was always okay. He was always thanking God for what he, uh, he lives in.
0: That's a fascinating story. Um, I guess it's also a life experience of many, how you feel about your own uh, uh, personal wealth. I have a question about legacy. Can we talk about a legacy of Nicola Khouri, uh, and so what that may be? Yes. So
2: when we talk when we talk about Nicola Khouri, in fact, I don't think that we know a lot of things about him. When you talk in Lebanon or Palestine about the Hajar, you will know him. In fact, Nicola Khoury, when we read uh, his journal, he say that uh, he edited an collusion, a book of prayers. In fact, until now, we are using his book in Orthodox churches for marriage, baptism, etc. So the legacy of Nicola Khoury is uh, present in his book. He was, his book was published many times. But also, I should I think that it's important also to mention that a part of this journal was uh, translate was published in Arabic in a book entitled "Insaniyat Malik," or the humanity of a king. It's a book about uh, the life or the biography of the Sultan Abdul Aziz ibn Abdul Rahman Al Saud, the f- founder of the Arabi Saudi, and it seems that. Uh, the, maybe the the uh, petit fils saw uh, the author somewhere in Washington, and he gave him all this journal. So uh, the author then put in his book some passages to speak more about Abdel Aziz, how he was open to other religions. But in fact, until now, we don't. Have a real legacy of uh, Nikola Khouri. I don't know, Sada, if you have uh, something uh, to add.
1: No, I think I think that y- your point about the uh, the prayer book is something really interesting because Khouri does talk about it in his memoir, but not not for very long, you know, he, he, he has, uh, he publishes several books. There's, there's, this, um, there's this Arabic edition that he edits, and then he also, with his cousin, wrote a history of the Orthodox Church in Palestine, which is referenced quite often. But again, he only actually writes about this sort of maybe one or two paragraphs at most. Um, and I think this is sort of interesting in that he has a legacy, you know, he has a legacy in that there are churches where he he's part of people's lives every day or every week, but that's not the legacy he wanted. Um, which is kind of sad, but is also sort of tells us about something I think about, you know, the human condition generally in terms of how we want to see ourselves and and our, and our own legacies. But you know, that's 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 in some ways what his legacy is. It's his um, you know, his sort of vision of the Arab. And Arabic language presence in the Orthodox Church so you know he's he's there but we you know people don't tend to recognize him as a as a name um, for doing those things and they're not the things that he wanted to, to succeed in and be seen as important for. These were
0: Sarah Irving and Charbel Nassif that together with Karen Sanchez edited The House of a Priest, A Palestinian Life, 1885-1954, published by Brill and available in open access online. Sarah and Sherbel, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.